Welcome to Fortress on a Hill. I'm Henry. I'm Danny. I'm Kagan. We're three leftist veterans that aim to expose the reality of the U.S. military's multiple wars abroad and to illuminate the damage military service does to Americans. American presidents throughout U.S. history have used American military and diplomatic power to force regime change of democratically elected governments around the world. Most veterans come from families vested in prior service, and American generals choose their own, ensuring diversity of thought never interferes with American warmongering. How can we stand by and do nothing while our military kills and destroys lives the world over, while telling Americans that all this death and destruction protects them from terrorists when nothing could be more false? Fortress on a Hill aims to change that. Well, welcome everybody to Fortress on a Hill's live episode for Memorial Day. Um, I am going to turn things over to uh, Danny and our first guest, Ryan Keen. All right. Hey, uh, thanks for, for being patient. Um, if, if we didn't have Henry uh, fixing the snafus uh, and being the brains behind this operation, then, uh, then I think I'd be using smoke signals still to uh, get my message out, uh, which, which, wouldn't, which wouldn't help any of us. Um, listen, we have an incredible lineup on Fortress on a Hill tonight. And uh, people that kind of humble me, and, and I, can, I think I can speak for Henry and Kagan as well, uh, we've had incredible guests on the podcast recently. Some folks might've noticed, you know, we've had Bob Shear and Chris Hedges and Gareth Porter and Roxanne and, you know, and it's, and it's great. And, and they're amazing guests and uh, we wouldn't trade them for the world, but the folks that we have on the night, the lineup, okay. This evening of veterans who uh, did everything that was asked of them, volunteers, all uh, who came to a journey of descent or questioning of the, the wars that they were in and then eventually the warfare state. You know, this, this is the real voice of a generation that, that I really do think uh, ha- has been left behind of veterans. Uh, the ones that, that they don't put on MSNBC and certainly not Fox News. A lot of these guys, uh, and unfortunately they're all guys tonight, if you can forgive us, but a, a lot of these guys uh, uh, are, are activists and, and writers in their own right. And, and we've got Eric Edstrom on whose, uh, whose book is incredible and just, you know, got reviewed by, uh, you know, Thomas Ricks in the New York times. So, you know, what I'm saying isn't that, that these folks aren't of themselves impressive. They are. And, and a lot of them are uh, at the forefront of what they do whatever their business is, whatever their medium is, you know, we've got people on here who play music and do poetry and we've got leaders of anti-war organizations and activists and writers. But the thing I think that we all have in common uh, is, is that we prove that the veteran community is not a monolith, as I always say, and that even we're not the same, you know, we don't, even though all of us are vaguely anti-war veterans that doesn't mean that we got to the place we're at through the same journey, nor, nor does it even mean we all agree with the same stuff. And, and you've heard me and Henry and, and Kagan for the most part agree on the podcast, in our questions, in our conversations. But it struck me recently that 
I know for me personally, and Matt Ho is on the show, and Matt and I uh, wrote a joint op-ed that was in Mother Jones this morning, challenging and questioning and really just taking apart the whole concept of a nostalgized Memorial Day. And in that conversation, and I know Matt so much because that op-ed came out largely of just a phone call, you know, uh, with me and him and, and Henry uh, was in it in the beginning and the end as well. We were talking about how this year we're in a different place with Memorial Day. Like our truth, each of us, me and Matt, about Memorial Day is different. And, and different from last year and definitely from 10 years ago and certainly different from the year we put on the uniform, which was different for all the folks on this show today. And I got to thinking, and Henry and Kagan and I, we brainstormed this. We wanted to bring folks on to have a space, really no limits on whatever they want to talk about for 10 or 15 minutes each on how they process Memorial Day, what it means, broader than that if they want, personal or metaphysics. We don't don't care. And my sense, and I think I'm going to be right, is that each of us is in a different spot, uh, physically, uh, temporally, in terms of the year, uh, and, and quite frankly, emotionally, with how we process this holiday that has been hijacked in many ways, along with Veterans Day, along with Labor Day, if you're a union guy. Uh, and, and I think that it's important to kind of express the individual's journey and the individual's truth for processing this holiday and not allowing the mainstream, you know, I I hate that term, but it's real, not allowing the narrative to be controlled by, you know, the gatekeepers of the six folks who own all the media channels. And so what we're doing here on a live show, you know, with our audience, which hopefully and seems to be growing, is an opportunity to do to some extent and in a less formal format, what the Winter Soldier hearings did in terms of taking on culpability. But more than that, right, this isn't just an opportunity for us to, you know, confess crimes, uh, but more so to speak an individual truth and to refuse to let the football field 50-yard line jumbotron buy your lunch in TJI Fridays before you go off to fight an illegal war. Refusing to allow that to encapsulate the veteran experience post 9-11. We're not that young anymore, any of us on here. Um, I don't know. My sense is Matt Ho is probably the, he might be the old guy in the group. I don't know, Matt or Giovanni. Uh, We're going to find out. Everyone's going to out themselves like an AA meeting. You know, I'm Matt Ho and, you know, I'm getting long in the tooth. But, you know, we're not that young. and, And most of us were involved in these wars from the outset or something close. And, uh, and I'm certain in the sense that uh, I know where I'm at, that uh, I, I don't process Memorial Day the same way any longer. And I don't even process it the same way as I did when I first turned anti-war. And I, and I think we're going to get sort of a feel for that tonight. So uh, I want to really give the guests most of the time to uh, speak. But bef- before we do that, I, I, I think just to clarify what we're going to try to do. Uh, And then I'm going to hand it off to Kagan, uh, my co-host, and then Henry, uh, sort of the founder of the podcast and and our other co-host to just give, you know, we'll probably be more brief, you know, and and give five minutes on 
where we're at, uh, what, how we process and, and how we view the, the remaining, you know, utility of this holiday, how we choose to honor the fallen. And then after that, we're going to run in, we're going to do, uh, uh, my great buddy, Ryan Keene, and, uh, and I'll sort of introduce guests and we'll, we'll take turns with that. But I, I will say that, uh, I, you know, I wrote a piece recently called Veterans Accountability in an Age of Pandemic. And, uh, and it seems like you can't publish an article or give an appearance anymore unless the word coronavirus is in the head headline. And, you know, it kind of sickens me and it annoys me when they change titles. But I do think, on the other hand, that if if not now, when, right, if not us, who, to repeat that cliche. And um, the reason I mentioned accountability is I thought if we're going to take the first steps to telling truths about this war and then arguing for the end of the warfare state, there is a degree of culpability that we have to accept as veterans. And, and I don't think it's fair to uh, ask civilian communities to rise up without admitting the fact that we may not personally have started the war, but we were part of the warfare system and structure. I think we're big enough to do that as a veterans community. And, and, I, and I'm skeptical of words like community and capital letter we or capital letter, letter us, but we all do it. And I don't think I speak for all veterans, but I can say that this lineup tonight is more reflective of where veterans are at than most people would be comfortable with. And that doesn't mean that everyone agrees with us. doesn't mean that everyone's ready to join about face veterans against the war. The war. We've got Giovanni here, right, who's a lead in that organization. Uh, but I'm, I'm sensing rumblings within the veterans community and even within the active and reserve community that, that folks are, are tired of this, tired of carrying water for the empire without even the hope, without even the concept of victory being lied to us any longer. So uh, the key thing is um, there are no limits. Uh, folks can talk about whatever the heck they want. This isn't contrived. This isn't fake crossfire from the 90s. Uh, there's no limits. And if, you know, um, I or Henry or Kagan may ask some follow-ups, something interests us, but go in any direction and you know, don't, don't, don't see any st structure of note, except for, you know, we'll try to keep it to 10 or 15 minutes each, but Kagan, if you don't mind leading off, uh, as our first co-host, um, I'm putting you on the spot cause we didn't talk about this at all, which is proof that we're not crossfire. Uh, you know, where are you at today? What's on your mind? That that's what I, that's what I'm interested in. I know that's what, what the listeners are interested in. Yeah. Um, this day is interesting to me. I think we, I, I love that you, you, the piece you guys did today was just great. I have to say, I am really grateful for it. Um, I definitely needed to hear it. I think I felt like it was very encompassing. Um, something that I think about a lot on this day is the active duty suicides, just because in my command within the first probably seven months we had a good we had at least two people commit suicide in my first seven months there and one of them was one of the guys in my shop that toured me around and like was my tra like trainer for a better lack of a word and you know it's it, like that's the 
we we talk a lot about the veteran suicide and we talk a lot about how it impacts us um and what you know we should do but when it comes to you know active duty suicide it should be way more uh, there should be more attention paid to it than there is because it's it's so shoved under the rug you know how many people think about it and say oh he committed suicide because of how difficult his job was or everything that was on top of him you know they don't try to look at it that way and to broaden it out and say oh wait maybe there's more that we could be doing so i i try to think about them and i try to think a lot about the people that we killed i love that you guys said that as well like we can't just keep focusing on this day as specifically remembrance for people for like our american soldiers that died because we kill hundreds of thousands of people over the last 20 years and we need to account for that and we need to take that into our psyche i think we need to realize that it is the 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 consequences of our actions and i think that we try to do a good job of that here on the podcast and everybody that's with us i think that we all try to do that in our own way and i think we just have to keep um, we have to keep doing this kind of stuff where we're, we're feeling together, we're feeling connected some way so we can help each other out through this. Kagan, if, if you don't mind, because I think we might have some new listeners today, uh, which is a gift, um, would, would you let people know just briefly um, what you did in the service and, uh, and what you're doing now? Because I think that that is relevant to this community that we're talking about. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so I was in the Navy from 2009 to 2013. I worked in the intelligence community. I was in the Navy. I worked with NSA. Uh, I was stationed at an NSA base, and I worked uh, in different missions in uh, Yemen, Somalia, Libya, like basically all over the Fifth Fleet AOR, and um, which is the Middle East and North Africa. So very busy time, the beginning of the drone strikes, the beginning of that mission when it was really ramping up into what we know now is just going full bore. Um, and uh, I got out of the Navy and I just wanted to give back. And I wanted, to, I, I had worked in the nonprofit sector before I was in the Navy. So I kind of wanted to do something along those lines. And so now I uh, work for the county, um, one of the counties here in Portland, and I run a housing program for homeless veterans. I try to get them off the street and get them connected to resources and get them stably housed and then hopefully work towards self-sufficiency, you know, feeling better and just getting them out of that traumatic space in their life. And I can also pick people who have, uh, who aren't VA eligible, which I think is so perfect. Um, that's one of the reasons that attracted me to the job was because I could do that, you know, and where the people who have dishonorable discharges, they can get uh, or just any kind of discharge that isn't an honorable, you know, can really limit your options as far as your ability to do stuff. And so I'm grateful that I can at least help people that all they had to do was sign their name on the dotted line. And if they have these other criteria that they meet, I can help them. So it's really nice, nice. that I, I feel like I can help give back and I can help like put my own frustrations and my own like culpability in the machine into something that is actually trying to help out my fellow veterans. You know, I'm, I fear that I'm a cliche machine tonight, but, uh, which I normally hate, but I think what strikes me about you and it's been so great 
since you've joined the podcast is that, well, not only do you provide like the Navy flavor. So in case we need to know what someone whose officers wore white shoes thinks, uh, <laughs> but uh, no, in all seriousness, I mean, I, I really do think that you're a, a perfect evidence of, uh, Hey, all right. We got a guest. I like it. Uh, your perfect evidence of continuing the service out of uniform in, in a real way that uh, I think a lot of people don't realize that like the service ethic doesn't just go away. And it sounds from everything we've talked about, like working with the homeless vets is a way that not only are you giving back as, you know, a Bobby Kennedy ripple of hope. I'm talking good Bobby Kennedy, not attorney general, Bobby Kennedy, uh, <laughs> you know, a, a ripple of hope that is real in the small actions because macro action hasn't saved homeless veterans. Right. Um, but you are. And I think that what strikes me about what you just said is, the extent to which it's also cathartic for you and, and means something to you personally in an emotional sense, probably also an intellectual one. So, um, you know, to, to close out on that, I mean, um, your interaction with, with these vets, you know, that are struggling more than, than all of us are struggling. Um, how is that reframed the way that you view the veteran community? I mean, how is it complicated it for you, I guess? Um, it's been really interesting because I didn't know what being a veteran was until I started doing this work, because I think like a lot of, I think maybe a lot of us, when we get out, we initially just have that reaction of like, fuck it. I don't care. I don't want to do anything. Like, I don't want to have anything to do with the military. I just want to like focus on me and like building my new life. So that's how I was for the first couple of years. And then when I started working in this community, I really started to get to understand what being a veteran was, you know, this camaraderie that we have across generations and branches and how, how palpable it is. You know, the fact that I can go in and talk to people who have completely different life experiences than me, you know, their lives have been traumatic and stressful and, you know, maybe they've been had some criminal criminal activity or mental illness and uh, undiagnosed or substance abuse. And so it's been cool though for like me having like a pretty privileged life at points and being able to then sit down and talk with those people. And we have the same language. We have the same way of talking about it. And I think we do a really good job as veterans as like, I feel like we get really deep really quickly with each other, which I love because I'm all about the big conversations and the, you know, the, the real talk. So it's really nice to be able to do that in a space, especially with guys where, you know, we came from a hyper-masculine environment so there's all the like, oh, we need to be tough and all that. But to be able to like sit there and talk with each other and have a real conversation, I love. And it makes me feel um, so good that I'm doing this work and that I am at least trying to make, um, I know we don't have to make amends for what we do. Like that's not part of it, but it's, I feel like we all feel that way. We all feel like we have to do better than we were and that's okay you know, it's okay to be where we were. And now we, we are just trying to figure out what the best thing is for us. And this, this has been a good path for me. And I hope to continue on it into a more policy focused direction. Oh, that's great. And uh, I think what, what's interesting about what you said is I bet you, you know, not all those veterans uh, vote exactly the same way as you, if they do, right. They're not from the same place. And we, we have a connection that transcends politics 
in a large sense. And like you said, one of the great things about being part of the veteran community is that you have an immediate in with each other. And so like there are friends that I only see like every five years, but when I do, it's like, we're deep into some beers right away. And it's like, we never left. And it's funny how the extended community is that way. Um, so, all right, well, I'm going to do my best to not be verbose, which I will fail at throughout the evening. Uh, Henry, uh, is, is up next. The interesting thing some people might not know about Henry is we have never met in person. Um, we, we are like a long distance, like I'm not, I'm still until tonight, you know, I wasn't sure if I was getting catfished, you know what I mean? It's like a long-term, uh, relationship, but, but Henry reached out to me about the podcast shit years ago. I don't even know. I mean, I, I still probably had on high and tight, you know? Um, but, but Forged on the Hill is, is his baby and his idea. And, uh, Henry, again, because we have some new folks, um, if you can just kind of give the, uh, the one-on-one and bore those who have listened a few times on, on where you're coming from, uh, in your experience. And then, uh, what's on your mind today, how are you processing the day in 2020 in the midst of, I don't know, quarantine, if depending on if you have a Republican or Democratic governor. <laughs> Harry, I'm not catching your audio. All right. Anybody else getting Henry? No. All right. Well, uh, Kagan, if you could text Henry, then what I'll do is I will jump to Ryan, and uh, and we will bring we'll bring Henry on. We, we, he can be like the anchor bowler, you know uh in the in the league i I used to be on bowling teams because i think that's required in neighborhoods like mine um ryan keen has the most exquisite hair of the evening for sure um he uh he actually uh is a peaceful guy and uh, not only anti-war but uh, definitely uh, something close to a pacifist, but you wouldn't know it because when he hops on the screen here, he does look like he's ready to rape and pillage a British monastery circa the year 970 uh, with the Norsemen uh, Vikings. But uh, Ryan is a, a, a personal friend. Um, I'm going to let him talk about his experience, but you know, we met through About Face at, uh, at my first convention. Giovanni was there, of course kind of shepherd me into the organization and uh we shared a cabin uh not no weed because i was still uh, on active duty and sort of surreptitiously uh part of an anti-war organization which was fun but we we definitely shared a, a, a lot of drinks and more laughs and probably a few cries and uh, i think that what ryan brings to the table as much as as anybody else here is um a profound sense of his his own place in the war machine and, uh, and a courageous willingness to speak frankly about it. And, uh, and Ryan, thanks so much for joining us and I'm going to give you the floor and then, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see where it goes, brother. All right. Um, a couple things first off, thank you for having me on, uh, Henry, Danny, Kagan, it's my third time on the podcast on Fortress on the Hill. And um, I really look up to this podcast and the anti-imperialist work um, that y'all are doing. 
also, I want to make it clear, I, I do not believe in pacifism. Um, I believe the revolution, revolution is the only way to change this imperialist system. But yeah, um, yeah, something close to a pacifist. Uh, I, I guess I should have said uh, uh, <laughs> uh, you're a pacifist for the bad wars. Yeah, sorry. That's okay. Okay, so my name is Ryan Keene. I was in the Ohio Army National Guard from 2002 to 2008. I joined at the age of 17 as a 19 kilo M1 Abrams tanker. Um, and then I eventually reclassed as an 11 Charlie infantry mortarman. Um, however, my unit of tankers and infantry mortarmen, we were armored cavalry, um, Ohio Army National Guard unit. We were deployed um, in 2005, from January 2005 to December 2005 at Camp Cropper, which at the time was a gray site. Um, it was the HVD facility in Iraq, the only one. HVD stands for High Value Detainee. Um, there was three primary detain detainee sites in Iraq, Abu Ghraib, the infamous Abu Ghraib, Buka, and then Camp Cropper. Um, at Camp Cropper, since we were the high-value detainee camp, um, we not only had all high-value detainees, but also every American citizen and most foreign citizens um, that were detained, usually illegally um, in Iraq. Um, we did not deploy to Iraq with our M1A1 Abrams and our Bradleys like we were trained on. Um, we were pre-mobed at Fort Dix, New Jersey at the end of 2004 um, as a combat security company to do route security, convoy security patrols in Iraq. We got to Kuwait, Camp Virginia in January 2005. And without any training or experience um, as MPs or corrections, the government decided, I believe with intent, to put us at in their estimate, that the most important detainee facility um, in Iraq. Now, after the atrocities in Abu Ghraib were exposed, thankfully, in 2004, we were the first unit to go to Camp Cropper and to go to a detainee facility in Iraq after that was exposed. Now, instead of having more oversight and more video and audio surveillance on the camp to prevent such atrocities and war crimes and psychological and physical torture, Task Force 134 under Major General Brandenburg, who I served under, decided that the only audio and video um, equipment allowed on camp was for the one camp doctor. Now, of course, the camp doctor having that one video and audio um, device was to cover their ass and to check a box 
for the ICRC, which was the International Crescent Red Cross, which was the only NGO that was ever permitted on our camp. Okay, now before I go into some, I'm not gonna go into details about Camp Cropper, but I am gonna speak about a couple people at Camp Cropper and some generalities of the war crimes and torture that I witnessed and participated in. Um, first off, I would like to say that there are two individuals um, that were near and dear to me that passed away when I was in Iraq. Nate DeArmond was killed on September 1st, 2005, and Robert Pope II on November 7th, 2005. Since Iraq, Alex Lopez on May 17th, 2018, um, he lost his battle post um, Afghanistan. He was a Marine in Afghanistan that I met at the VA hospital in Cleveland through PTSD groups. Um, also, I'd like to mention a fellow About Face member, Veterans Against the War, Jamie Quebechow, who passed away May 4th, 2019. Now, when I was at Camp Cropper, there was zero oversight. We were a combat arms unit of tankers and infantry, completely untrained for the task with the most high value detainees, including the Ba'ath Party and Saddam Hussein, including um, top members of Al Qaeda. Um, I worked on the SHU, which was a special housing unit where we kept American citizens as well as foreign fighters. And I was the number one man on the force cell extraction team for riots and disturbances within the prison. Just to give a quick um, history of Camp Cropper, Lieutenant Colonel William Steele was someone who I served under the command of, of Task Force 134 at Camp Cropper. Um, he was charged with providing cell phones to detainees in exchange for sexual relations with the daughters of some of the detainees. He also was charged for pulling his sidearm, his pistol on a tower garden. Um, so these are the types of individuals, the little bit of oversight we had, these are the megalomaniacs that were guiding us. And you can look up Lieutenant Colonel William Steele. Um, Cyrus Carr, I would like to mention Cyrus Carr was an American citizen, a Navy veteran of Persian descent. He was a documentary filmmaker that had been approved by the FBI and the State Department in 2005 to make a documentary on Cyrus the Great, the Persian ruler. He was pulled over in Baghdad on May 17th, 2005, and they found one washer timer in the cab that Cyrus Carr was riding in. And when, after that happened, the sequence of events was, he was bagged and tagged, taken to Abu Ghraib. From Abu Ghraib, it was recognized that he was American citizen, so he was immediately transferred. We picked him up and took him to Camp Cropper. Cyrus Carr was held 
from May 17, 2005 until July 10, 2005, under many forms of psychological and physical torture. Cyrus Carr was one of the first persons also to try to sue Donald Rumsfeld and George W. Bush, unsuccessfully. The ACLU is quoted as saying about Cyrus Carr on July 5, 2005, Saddam Hussein has more due process than Cyrus Carr, an American citizen and a Navy veteran. This detention policy was drafted by Kafka. Now, as an American citizen and a Navy veteran, Cyrus Carr was put into the SHU, the special housing unit where I was, which means for 23 hours a day, he was held in isolation. He received such things as every other prisoner, like sound and light, overload, or deprivation, sexual deprivation and dehumanization through sodomy, or also by um, being forced to be naked. Um, a lot of times during any time a detainee would have to leave the cell to go to the bathroom, which they were only allowed to go a couple times a day, or for their one hour per day of rec, where they went out into a gravel pit with a cage by themselves, they would have to be searched. So it was a common occurrence to shove things up people's asses when you search them. It was also known that that was a complete, as any human, more or less um, people of Muslim descent, um, that that is absolutely abominable and immoral and unethical. And oh, definitely something that I would hope American citizens would not support. Um, one of the things that really got me to start thinking about it when I was at Camp Cropper was there was a detainee, I'm, I don't know his name, it was number 179, I'll never forget his number. He was of Persian descent, he was an Iranian, uh, an alleged Iranian fighter. Mind you, most of the detainees were ended up released and found innocent, no crimes eventually, after they were tortured. Um, they were authorized once a week to have a shaving kit with nail clippers, um, tweezers, and a single blade razor. So he took the nail clippers and the tweezer, and he was able to get out the single blade out of a disposable razor, proceeded to slit his throat, and I was the first one on the scene. Um, to realize that I had the ability to psychologically torture someone to the point where they want to die and that by me saving them is going to inflict even more torture onto them and make it even worse um, was something, I mean, you know, I dream about it all the time. I see see his eyes and um another instance there was one of the first mia soldiers in iraq his name was matt maupin we were an ohio army national guard unit matt maupin who was later found to be kia was from ohio so 
the alphabet agencies because it was a gray site. No one was allowed in and out of our base except for my company. And then you had CIA, FBI. Um, you had the ISG, which was the Iraq survey group. You had MI6 um, and these type of intelligence agencies. So they told us there was a father and son that came in. The father supposedly was a tribal leader and a warlord that helped or knew where Matt Maupin's whereabouts were and the kidnappers who took him. The son, we, we didn't know the age. If I had to guess, maybe 14 to 16 years old. Now I'm a father of three. And what they had us do was play psychological torture games with the father and the son. Tell one that we were going to kill the other one. Make the other one walk by, have the son or the father walk by in front of their cell. They only had a little wicket. They didn't even have a window to look through, no sunlight, and let them know that what was going on. Now, this is something that I can never forgive myself for being a father. Um, I do not know if this person ever was anything to do with Matt Maupin, but that's what they used against us. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and close now. Um, I've been in and out of mental health since 2006. Um, and now I, I've been through prolonged exposure therapy. I've been through CPT therapy. Um, I currently do not take medication. I use medical marijuana and some holistic therapies like yoga, meditation, writing, etc. Um, and also being a member of About Face Veterans Against the War, as well as a member of United Panther Movement, has given me a sense of purpose and belonging. And um, I'm going to go ahead and end with this poem, and I'm going to pass it, because I know I've probably been talking too long. My own prison, flying into a foreign land. I've heard there's a lot of sand. The cradle of civilization is looking for liberating. We're supposed to rebuild a nation. But was that lost in translation? Can you truly be satisfied while occupied? Young, dumb, and full of pride. Just turn 20 and swallow too much fluoride. Spoon-fed propaganda from the start of school. Force-fed lies just like a fool. Indoctrination is so cool. Eyes still covered with plenty of wool. Cover your ass, but not your conscious. No accountability creating justified lies. Deniable culpability, how our government hides. Domination through dehumanization is intoxicating. Absolute control through intimidation is exhilarating. Depersonalization, degradation, and demoralization with no hesitation. These are just some of the things I can provide with the circumstances I was supplied. Temptation is too great. I think it's too late. No turning back, I've sealed my fate. Moral mutation, I think it's too late. Evil transformation, I've sealed my fate. I think it's too late. I think it's too late. Suddenly the wool was removed from my eyes. Now propaganda I truly despise. Deceived and tricked, I've met my demise. Condemnation is my realization. Medication, irritation, rumination, and isolation followed by self-mutilation is just a start. What happened to me? I thought I had a good heart. Welcome to my own prison, where shame and anger occupy. I've turned into Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde. 
Welcome to my prison. Enjoy the ride. It's a one-way trip. Jim Jones wants to know if you want to sit. Welcome to my prison. Avoid or be destroyed. Welcome to my prison. Paranoia fills my void. Welcome to my prison. Be careful. Don't feed the animals. Welcome to my prison. I think it's too late. I think it's too late. I have sealed my fate. Now I'm filled with soul-eating hate. Welcome to my own prison. And thank you guys for uh, allowing me to speak. Hey, thank you, Ryan. Um, I love I love hearing your poetry, man. And uh, the first time I, that that you performed it, uh, especially at the last convention, man, it's, it's just a great medium. And and I appreciate always your candor uh, and what you have to share. So yeah, man, we couldn't do this without you. And I'm glad that more people get to to hear your experience because it is vital and it is not you know, solely unique, right? You, all those folks are with you and, uh, you know, you're a strong brother and I appreciate that. Um, we all do. All power to the people. <laughs> always, always. So, uh, like I say, we're going to, we're going to hold, uh, Henry to, to help bring down the house with, uh, yours truly. Uh, I'm going to let, uh, Kagan kind of introduce Giovanni who's, who's up next. And, uh, and, and he's just one of the sort of, you know, key voices in the anti-war movement right now. So I'm going to turn it over to Kagan. Thanks. Thanks so much, Ryan. Um, Giovanni, thank you so much for being willing to come on and be with us tonight. Um, we, anybody who's gotten any email from about face probably knows who he is. Uh, Giovanni is one of the big leaders of the group and we're really grateful to have him on and, uh, just to talk about you know, what Memorial Day means to him and how uh, we're all going to get through this together. <laughs> so thanks so much, Giovanni. Hey, Kagan, uh, thank you for, for introducing me and thank you guys for inviting me, um, uh, Henry and uh, um, Daddy. And I always enjoy your sh I listen to your show and, and rec recommend it to other people as well. And and every time I listen to Dan, it's like being in a class, <laughs> you know, it's a class session. I'm waiting, I'm waiting for that book, actually, you, that you said you're going to come up with, the uh, 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 Understanding the History, the little series about history, and you said he's going to make it into a book. Um, I'm, waiting, I'm waiting for that to come out. Um, she's coming. She's coming. <laughs> she's in the fun editing process. Yeah. And right on, Harry and um, um, Ryan. Uh, thank you for that poem. And Matt. So, uh, right off the bat, I want to go ahead and uh, since it's Memorial Day, um, most people take Memorial Day here as a day to go to the beach. I mean, here in in, in Texas, um, the beach in Ar in Aransa, the coast, it was just full of people. You know, uh, uh, we have a Republican governor that he's been looking for uh, to to open the state from the get go. He didn't want to close the state. You know, the mayors had a, had a pretty much take the initiative did it on their own uh and when he was forced you know then he put measures on the state but now he's pushing to open the state so this weekend there's a lot of people in in the beach um hopefully um nothing severe come out of it you know nothing bad come out of it or whatnot uh but i want to i want to go ahead and um and remember today you know since it's memorial day you know um i want to remember uh, Jacob George, uh, first most, he, uh, he was, uh, been a member for about face since 2000 and 
want to say 2014, I've been a member of About Face, and he was like the second uh, person I met um, physically. The first, um, and then shortly after that, uh, we lost him to uh, more injury and lost him to suicide after that. But he was he was the second person I met in About Face. Uh, also, I want to call out uh, Pablo Colon. Pablo Colon, he was a uh, um, he was he wasn't a member of our face, but we were stationed together at one point, and uh, um, and we you know we always kept communication by email back then, you know, and calling, and and then uh, found out that uh, uh, yeah, found out that uh, it took his life. Um, and then lastly, I want to call out uh, Jamie uh, uh, Uh Ryan talked about him earlier, and. Jamie, I was actually, he was a newer member and I was actually mentoring him. Uh, we were literally talking on the phone days before uh, he went missing. Um, so, yeah, so that was really impactful for me. Uh, so what does Memorial, so before we go into that, I want to let you guys know that uh, I'm a 14-year Army veteran. Uh, I did 12 years active duty, two years reserve. I was a medic the whole time, combat medic the whole time. Uh, um uh, I came in at the, at the tail end of the first Gulf War, the Persian Gulf War. Um, so I know that, uh, that Dan was talking about outing ourselves, outing our age earlier, right? Yeah, so that's why I came in. I came in the military like the tail end of the, of, of the Persian Gulf War. Uh, and I was intrigued by it. I was intrigued by it. And because I was in high school and I came from a military town and pretty much was a, I was living in a base actually uh, in the fort, but now I was in the military. So I saw everybody get deployed. Uh, but 18 months before that, everybody went to, to Panama and got back. So I was really intrigued by that. And, and that just pretty much pushed me to learn more about the region, learn more about why, what was that happening. But, um, but yeah, I came in the tail end of the, uh, the, uh, the first Persian War. After that, when I kept, after that, in 1991, I kept pretty much track of it, uh, you know, visiting back and forth the history and visiting back and forth the updates of what's happening in Iraq and so forth. So I was pretty much knowledgeable of Iraq, of what was happening in Iraq by the time the the invasion happened. So I was pretty much, you know, on, you know, it, it didn't catch me. Oh, so I already know what was going on. I already know how things were leading up to it. I knew how the Clinton uh, government was pretty much bombing Iraq every other day. Uh, so I knew all that history. I knew that. So it didn't really come as a surprise to me. But uh, um, but uh, I um, and went to Germany. In Germany, we were so I came at the tail end of the first Gulf War. Then the uh, what happened in Somalia happened. I was in the military back then with the uh, the whole uh, the Mogadishu issue. I was in the military when the invasion of Haiti was supposed to happen. It was called off in the last minute. Um, uh, I had a friend. Uh, he was uh, he was in the military with me. He was Haitian, and he he went deployed as a as a as a translator to that um, incident to that to that uh, um, to that mission. Um, and I was in Germany when we pretty much participated in the dismemberment of of Yugoslavia in the beginning of the Gulf of the uh, Balkan Wars. I was pretty much in the second rotation into the uh, wars in the Balkans. Um, so. Yeah, so um, so I did a lot of reading while I was deployed out there. I did a lot of reading, a lot of educating myself, and so forth. Uh, by the time the 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 uh, the invasion in two thousand um, two, 
when the whole run up to the Iraq war was happening, everyone was getting all, you know, all the whole sensation. Everybody was so hyped about going into Iraq. And I remember people in my unit saying, you know, uh, I can't wait to put into practice what I trained and um, we're going to do this. We're going to do that using a lot of slurs, a lot of racial, uh, that time race, racism was actually encouraged within the command, you know, before, you know, how you have, uh, how, you know, you know, how to tell you that racism is not tolerable in the, in the and every commander tells you that and you have um uh what are those uh equal opportunity and so forth but that at that moment you know racism would just throw you know just people just throwing racist slurs just back and forth just throwing it out there um so yeah so i was so you know so pretty much bearing on me because i already knew how everything was leading up to it um I already had I already been, you know, following the story with Iraq. So so that wasn't so I refused to go. I refused to participate in that. So at that moment, I decided that I couldn't continue in the military. At the time I was in, I was actually a, a an instructor uh at, a, at this at this very famous institution where everybody knows, you know, everybody here about this institution. I'm not gonna call it out, but I was this very famous institution uh, where people uh, it's known for for training dictators, you know, and death squads and so forth. So I was a trainer in that, and when when everything happening and all that, and and I remember my uh, my commander, my 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 OIC, not my commander, but my OIC, my uh, we got a captain. He was uh, in charge of our section, and he was like, he was just like ecstatic that we were about to get invaded Iraq. I mean, he was just like he was like a kid in the, in, in the candy store, you know. He was just so hyped up, so ecstatic about it. So I remember all that. Um, so. Um, Right now, uh, like Danny said, I'm part of an anti-war organization called um, named uh, uh, About Face Veterans Against the War. We used to be called Iraq Veterans Against the War. Uh, so I do a lot of education. I do a lot of processing new members inside the, in the organization. Um, I focus a lot in hybrid warfare because that's particularly an aspect where most people don't really take it as, as war. People, when you say war, people think about bombs dropping um, forces landing, but they don't see warfare as if you're intentionally crippling someone's economy. Um, if you're pushing and crippling to a point of collapse, you know, uh, where denying basic medications, you know, like that of, of diseases that pretty much people don't die from anymore, but now they're dying are uh, this, this, this diseases because they can't get the medicine because you have sanctioned that country to a point where they have to just people just to watch their kids die, you know, because they can't get vaccinations because of sanctions. So that's a form of, of of hybrid warfare where it's not really talked about in the media. It's, not, it's really pretty much looked away. It's pretty much not seen as as a type of warfare. But it's very very deadly. Very it kills a lot of people. Uh, it might not kill American soldiers, but it kills a lot of people. Um, so that's, I do a lot of education on that. Um, so. What are we responsible for as 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 veterans? Um, I think that we have a huge responsibility. I mean, we're responsible for massive damage that we cause, uh, obviously. Um, and and these wars, it's never ending wars. And I think that that uh, we haven't 
seeing the repercussion with this with this war in, in, in the Middle East. We haven't really seen the full repercussion. We've seen a lot of ripples. We haven't seen the full repercussion of what's of what's going to happen or what's happening. I mean, we literally destroyed societies, complete societies, functioning states. We've pretty much destroyed them, and now they're they're pretty much um, in a state of a failure states, failed states, you know? So we really haven't really seen the repercussion. And like Malcolm said, you know, a chicken comes home to roost all the time, you know? Um, so I think as, as veterans, our responsibilities first and foremost is to acknowledge our role. And this. the military is the arm wing of the state, you know, the military is, is the arm wing of the state. I'm going to say it again. And we, and I've never heard of, I've never met a soldier who declared war on anyone. Usually someone else is doing it and it's sending soldiers, you know. So you can't say that I've heard stories. I've heard people tell me that, you know, war is natural. Everybody does it. You know, everybody doesn't do war, <laughs> you know. So some people do more war than others. You know, if you look at it uh, holistically, it's just usually the same actors that are continuously doing wars and, and, and other populations that, that are reacting to it. But it's not by their initiative. Um, there's countries today that have never been to war, you know, um, I can think of a few, but so, yeah, so we are, you know, we need to acknowledge our, what we do. We need to acknowledge and we need to seek atonement. Uh, I think that's what we're doing when we join organizations like About Face, Veterans Against the War, when we join organizations like Veterans for Peace. And so, you know, we're seeking atonement. Uh, we're trying to be active. We're trying to do something. Um, how do we see the sacrifice uh, in the face of this heightened sense of responsibility, uh, regarding our participation in this war. That was a question that was asked to me. Uh, so I spoke with, uh, today, this morning, and more of the day, I uh, just did random calls of people that I've, I've been stationed with. You know, I haven't talked to in a while, just randomly calling, seeing how everybody's doing and everything. So I called this one person, and we were stationed together as, as well at one point, um, and I was doing, and his, he's out, he's retired already from the military, and what he tells me is that... Uh, He's he's still doing his thing in in putting balance on things, you know, putting balance in the world. What he was the same thing that he was doing while he was while we were in the military. That was his word, you know. Just what we were doing in the military, you know, I'm still doing the same thing. I'm still putting balance, and but in his way, the way he's putting balance is today. His his he's involved in youth programs. He's involved in in uh, um, helping uh, training like kids in basketball, strengthening, coaching, and stuff like that. And you know, talking, telling kids not to, you know, uh, not to not to stray away. But the way he used balance and and the way he linked it to what he was doing or what we were doing, but he included me as well. What we were doing while we were in the military, we we're providing balance. And I never really, I didn't dig into him what he meant by that, by what kind of balance we were providing. But I went, I went straight to. Um, I started thinking of what does he mean by that, by balance? I started thinking, and if he thinks that he was some type of a provider of some Lord overlord of the world that, you know, we're, you know, we're just making, we're making these calls, this life and death calls, and we're providing balance to the universe. Um, and it got me thinking to a, uh, that I read uh, from Matt Ho. He's in, he's in the, uh, uh, and, and this call right now and this talk, and it was about the the danger of the illusion, the danger of illusion, or the illusion of danger. Um, What's exact name of the of the of the um, beware? Where is it? Uh, 
Beware of the illusion of danger. And and, I, and his article was about people to right? But it got me thinking that if this individual had this illusion that he was some type of vessel to put order in the world, right? He was providing balance in the world. And if more people think like him, more soldiers think of, of like him, that we're in the military, we're providing some type of balance, that we're some type of, uh, some type of, um, I don't know, some type of uh, uh, Thanos, you know, Thanos from, from um, the Marvel movie, you know, putting balance and order in the world. You know, that was his word. You know, I'm here thinking if, if more people, more soldiers think like him, right? If this country, I mean, we call ourselves in the beacon of, of, of light and freedom, you know, the, 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 uh, we call our president, the leader of the free world, you know, uh, the rest of the world don't really get to vote for him though, but he's, for some reason, he's, 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 he's a leader of free world, you know? Um, so, so we have this mentality of, of putting balance, of putting, uh, setting the course of this country, the course of this, the world system work, you know, that's a pretty dangerous, um, um, ideology. That's a dangerous ideology. Not only does harm to the people here, but it does harm to countless people that you would never meet, that you don't know, you know, and, you know, just by having the ideology alone, that you are, you are the, the possessor of some type of awesome power that you just can put balance on people. Um, yeah, those, so those were my last thoughts. I say um, one of the things before I close, uh, when this whole war on terror came about, just like I, I mentioned in my introduction when, uh, at the beginning of my monologue here, is that I saw this whole war on terror as farce. Um, I believe it was Marx that said that uh, the first time is tragedy, the second time is farce. I mean, this was the second time actually that war on terror was declared. The first time it was declared on Central America in the 80s. And that, was, and that, left, that left over over half a million people dead. And and when Ronald Reagan declared war on terror in Central America, um, this second time have left more people and it's still going, and it's still going. And uh, um, and I saw this as a farce, and I didn't want to take any part in it, you know. So at that time, I decided that you know, even though I was in over the hill, the hump, a lot of, like a lot of people said, because I already had twelve years in active duty, I decided to to cut loose and leave the military. I, already, I had kids, I had a family. I was, it was uncertain. I didn't have a job. You know, I know I didn't, you know, I didn't know what's going to happen. I didn't know if I was going to get a job. I didn't know if I was going to have uh, uh, health insurance and whatnot, but I did. I couldn't allow, I couldn't continue in this type of system. Uh, so I left the military. So, yeah, so that was my closing. And uh, um, yeah, I think, uh, I think I spoke over my time. Thank you. Um, thank you, Giovanni, um, for being a leader in, in, in the organization, in about face, longtime leader. Um, first person who got me, you know, into any sort of activism. And, uh, and I can't even guess how many other folks have kind of, you know, been under your wing and the way you mentor without, you know, being hierarchical is awesome. And, uh, it's, it's, it's awesome hearing about your refusal, you know, to play anymore in the Imperial game. And, um, that's a courage I didn't have. And I think most of us don't, um, Matt, Ho will probably talk a little bit about that, but you know, the, that, that's a rare thing. And, uh, and we, you know, we couldn't do this without you and you're such an important leader in this movement. So with that, I'll stop blowing smoke up your ass, but, uh, thanks for, <laughs> thanks for your, uh, for your time. And, uh, 
I'm going to introduce our, our next guest. Um, uh, Eric Edstrom is the other West Pointer on the call, which apparently uh, looking at the two of us, I mean, my, this is as long as my hair has been since I tried to be Kirk Cobain in 94. But looking at Eric and I, I mean, we're really like living that West Point clean cut stereotype more than the rest, Eric. We, we really need to work on that as a group. Um, I'm going to basically let him introduce himself because he's new to the podcast, um, but, but not, not really new to writing or the movement and keep an eye on him and his name. Uh, Eric and I have like a weird kind of random coincidences. He, uh, he grew up in the same Massachusetts town, Stoughton, that uh, my ex-wife is from. And I've spent like a ton of time there. We probably like drank in the same watering holes and didn't even realize it. And, uh, and then we also found out recently on a call that uh, we were in the same district of Kandahar province, Zari district in, uh, in Afghanistan, which was lovely. Um, I actually was almost going to get a timeshare there. I hope you did close the deal, Eric, because it, it's really a, a lovely place to be. Um, We're going to go back soon. Yeah. Yeah, I can't wait. I mean, and it is beautiful. That's the, that's the sad part, right? It, in, a, in a way, it is beautiful. It's just kind of a tough time to be there. But, you know, he's going to talk about uh, who he is and where he's coming from. Uh, but, but his book, Un-American, uh, A Soldier's Reckoning with Our Longest War, um, is creating waves already. It just came out. Uh, I'll go so far as to say I, I think he's the best writer talent wise in this movement, right? Um, of all the folks on, on here and that I know, and, and I say that honestly. So check this book out. And uh, well, you wrote an article kind of about Memorial Day that I got to see. So yeah, tell us what's on your mind. Well, first of all, thanks everybody. Um, it's really good to be part of the podcast and, and be with all of you and introduce myself to you guys and also introduce myself to whoever's out there viewing. Um, yeah, I've actually had the opportunity to write two Memorial Day articles. So there's the one that was there in the nation and uh, I published another one, which was sort of a direct tribute to my friend Tyler Parton, uh, which was published today by NBC. So NBC Opinion um, published that. And uh, I may actually use uh, a bit of time to read that article because I think that that really encapsulates uh, without being too heavy handed on Memorial Day specifically, a lot of the things I think, um, you know, there's there's time for opinion and there's there's time to, you know, really go hardcore rah rah on certain certain opinion pieces and, and push politics or ideology. And, and I wanted to take a softer touch on Memorial Day specifically because this specific day, I think, affects people very differently. Um, so that's why I wrote that piece. But quick bit of background on me. You know, I, I went to West Point, as Danny was saying, uh, graduated in 2007, was an infantry officer, did all the sort of normal stuff that you would do, you know, go to Fort Benning, go to Ranger School, Airborne School, all that. And, and then found myself out at 4th ID it, with um, uh, 112 Infantry, 4th Brigade, and uh, deployed to Afghanistan in 2009, 2010. And was out there, as Danny was mentioning, in Zari, Panjway, Argandab, and Maywan districts, just pre-surge. And um, that's right, you know, I, I published a book just this past week on the 19th of May. In a way, that's it's a big catharsis for me. That it, you know, this is something I've I've kept inside of me for a very long time. And rather than uh, some folks that uh, 
drip thoughts out into the public over time with writing opinion pieces. This has sort of been marinating inside of me for years. And um, it sort of is all at once. So, you know, it, it started out as basically war journals um, where, you know, I'm living in a mud shack with my sort of 28 guys uh, doing route clearance or, you know, clearing various trails, hoping to not step on an IED with your boots. And um, during that deployment, we had about 25% casualties out of my 28 guys. We didn't even make it through the, the first week or the rip with the outgoing unit before one of my squad leaders' vehicles was blown up. And uh, four of my guys were sent to back uh, home for, for treatment. One of them was actually sent back to me about five, six months later. And when he returned to the United States, he was involved in two separate murders of American citizens, uh, a shooting at a Walmart. And uh, then the second one was in Oregon, where they uh, basically followed a guy home, broke into his house, choked him to death with a chain and cut up the body and then robbed a bank with his car as if that was um, going to, you know, lead the feds, you know, away from the, the crime scene when they actually eventually got caught. So he's he's doing life in prison, actually, out in Oregon. Um, but th there's a lot to capture um, in Memorial Day in these stories as well. And I think one thing that I, I write about a bit is that when you learn something, you never see the world the same way. And when you're a kid and you sort of look out at your yard and you learn that something is called a tree. You're like, okay, that's a tree. And then with a bit more time and a bit more education, it's a maple tree. And then with a bit more time and education, it's a Japanese maple tree. And in the same way that there's a level of depth that you did not understand, but you cannot go back and unsee things once you have seen them. And the same thing, you know, is true about sort of military indoctrination as well. You know, it's a gun. No, 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 it's a weapon. No, 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 it's not a machine gun. It's an M249. And, and you proceed, and, and when you eventually go through each of these sort of portals, uh, you can't unsee things. And I think that Memorial Day, in the same way, also has sort of phases associated with it. And I think the most sort of like, the first one that sort of just hits you in the face and, and which is always going to be there is, is the element of direct loss, which is, you know, you have each Memorial Day, a, a group of people that you think of. Um, and, and, you know, my plebe year squad leader, when you're a freshman at West Point, my, my squad leader was killed in a helicopter uh, crash. One of the guys that I, I did training with as well as a plebe, uh, he was in the 101st Airborne. He was killed in Iraq. Um, you know, a buddy of mine in 2016, he rode crew with me out in the Hudson River. Uh, he was a Green Beret. He was killed out in Kunduz. You know, one of my buddies at Fort Carson, Tyler, who I'll read the, the article about, was killed during our deployment. Uh, you know, it, it, it comes very quickly. Another one, uh, not long after graduation, uh, within that sort of first year, right after Ranger School and everything like that, he was killed in Iraq. And you go with the family to... Uh, your first funeral for one of your, your the first funeral and, and Danny's shaking his head, you know, that, that for one of your classmates and you, you sort of remember it and that becomes very real. And that's that first phase. And then there's this sort of second phase of like, actually there's a long tail of war. And uh, that's the sort of the, the suicides, the zombie medications, 
Um, the folks that have long-term consequences as a result of this, and the deaths are not necessarily immediate. The, the bullet catches up to people five years later. And that's a different type of uh, acknowledgement that you can only have, I think, through going through that experience. And I, I think as well, there's sort of another phase of really what M uh, Memorial Day is about is empathy. It is, it's about empathizing with the families who have lost somebody. Um, but you start to realize in that sort of third phase that, you know, what would this look like? What does Memorial Day look like for the people of Afghanistan? Well, I mean, for starters, it would be a hell of a lot larger because there's, you know, hundreds of thousands of people that have died. Uh, and there'd be far less fanfare parades or pyrotechnics associated uh, with these remembrances. So, I mean, you, you start to think about that. And when it, you put it into perspective, you realize that, um, you know, Memorial Day is important in the United States, but the, the wake of war is far, far larger than just us. And it is far, far larger than the direct costs and it is far larger than the indirect costs as well. And, you know, I, I at this point, you know, having had my lived experience, having spent years thinking about it, you know, you also inevitably find this um, this tension of the, the sort of unquestioned fallacy that you often hear as a recursive thing every single Memorial Day, which is these people died so that we could have our freedoms. The snuck premise is that the war in which they had died in was directly serving and protecting our freedoms and and very few of the conflicts we you know participate in have anything to do with the defense of the national territory of the United States so if the war on terror was absent would we then say that therefore we are absent to have any freedoms here um, and and you start to quarrel with these thoughts and and that is something that i feel um, the american public doesn't think too much about or or um, too much or too deeply. But, you know, I, um, like I said, you know, I, I wrote this piece. I want to share it with you and I want to share it with the audience because I, I think that this is sort of the human element uh, that I, I wanted to get across. So this is uh, on NBC today. And um, the headline is On Memorial Day, veterans count who we've lost, knowing there'll be more to count next year. Subtitle. Every war we keep fighting means that we have to bury more soldiers like my friend Tyler. You can only ever have 10 summers in your 20s, no more. What you don't know is whether maybe you'll have less. Tyler Parton had five summers. Just before deploying to Afghanistan in May 2009, just before Tyler's last summer of his 20s, we went to the Golden Bee a little piano bar in Colorado Springs, near where we were stationed at Fort Carson. It was styled as an English gastropub. Its claim to fame besides the piano player was that it served yards of beer. At some point in the evening, the piano man offered a nod of recognition to Tyler, and suddenly between songs, they switched places. Tyler, of course, played Piano Man by Billy Joel, Clocks by Coldplay and a few Beatles songs and the jolly audience, most of us half in the bag, sang along. 
Tyler was a true Renaissance man, high school valedictorian, West Point honor graduate, musician, composer, Arabic speaker. He knew how to woo a crowd too. By the end of the evening, we hailed the bartender requesting the tippity top shelf, too expensive, I might die soon whiskey, hoping it might extinguish our pre-deployment jitters. It was one of the last drinks we ever had together. Tyler was killed about three months into our deployment on September 10th, 2009. When I found out that Tyler had been killed, I took my grief and treated it like nuclear waste. I found a deep, dark, emotional mine shaft, poured the emotions into rickety self-made barrels and threw them down. I hoped the mine shaft was deep enough and the barrels strong enough to last until I could deal with it later, back in America. I returned to the United States in June, 2010, and like 75% of the soldiers in my infantry platoon was fully intact, physically that is. Later, I was sent to serve as part of the honor guard on Fort Myer in Arlington, Virginia. One of my duties was to lead the full honors funerals in Arlington Cemetery for soldiers killed during the war on terror. Those service members are buried at the frontier of the cemetery, dress right, dress in section 60, looking east toward the Jefferson Davis Highway. I learned a few simple lessons in that job. Tilt your dress blues hat low so you don't have to look the family closely in the eyes. Focus on the inevitable wad of tissues clutched tightly against the leg of a fresh pressed black suit or the seam of a black skirt. Look, if you must, at the flowers, which always seem to be lilies or gladioli. Do whatever is necessary to not absorb the grief around you. Too much isn't good for you. In 2011, Tyler's family decided to bring his cremated ashes to final rest in Section 60, providing me with an inauspicious honor. I would be one of a handful of people who could say that they deployed to war with and then buried in Arlington one of their closest friends. I prepared for the ceremony with obsessive care. The flare on my chest, Bronze Star Medal, Combat Infantryman Badge, Ranger Tab, Captain's Insignia, was measured to the micron. We all waited at McClellan Circle, the band, the firing party, the escort platoon, the body bearers, the chaplain, the horse-drawn caisson, its six white horses, and me, the officer in charge. We marched in slow cadence to Tyler's grave. The body bearers unloaded his urn from the caisson, and through tears, Tyler's family looked on. The chaplain delivered his sermon while I stood in position, waiting for my part. The chaplain stepped back, and I stepped forward to render the final honors. I saluted Tyler's remains while the firing party fired the 21-gun salute, and the bugle played a sorrowful taps. The flag, folded into a tight triangle, was passed down to me. This time, I would not be able to look down or turn away to prevent feeling too much grief. I presented the folded flag to Tyler's crying mother, looking her directly in the eyes while offering my condolences. We were taught to say, quote, ma'am, this flag is presented to you on behalf of a grateful nation for the honorable and faithful service rendered by your loved one. But this time, that was not enough. I added, Quote, Tyler was one of my best friends in Colorado Springs. It was an honor to have known him. He truly was the best of us. I'm so sorry for your loss. 
As Tyler's family held each other, moving slowly to the black cars, I finally let the enormity of the Tyler-sized hole in the universe sink in. It hadn't gotten any smaller in the two years since it had been created. But there, next to Tyler's grave, were other freshly dug graves that did not yet contain their occupants and beyond that undisturbed earth with more space for more graves. With more time and more war, it too will fill with headstones that will look at a distance just like Tyler's. Around 1.4 million service members have lost their lives in wars throughout American history and Memorial Day is intended to honor them. Some Americans pause and do just that, but I and the soldiers I served with count the people we don't want to forget on this day, even though some aspects of what we have lost can, can be counted and others cannot. And maybe next Memorial Day, as we keep fighting these wars unchecked, the number that we have to honor and have to not forget will be larger still. So this Memorial Day, like every Memorial Day, I will raise a glass of tippity-top shelf, too expensive, we all days die someday whiskey to Tyler Parton, wishing he didn't belong to the past tense. And when I taste the smoke and peat, I'll pretend it's for him. But really, it's for me. So, here it is. Eric, it's, um, it's a pretty rare thing to say about an op-ed that it uh that it was beautiful and I, I mean that um i don't think any of us have the words except we've probably felt some version of that and um I ha i've drank at the golden bee having been stationed at fort carson and uh and i too think that it's it's funny how for for veterans a lot of times our memorial day is more tied to a moment like you described had a piano bar with somebody in a personal way, you know, than just the flags and, and all those things as, you know, as valuable as they are to many people. So thanks so much for coming on and, uh, and for sharing that. I hadn't seen it and I'm so glad you read it for everybody. I, um, I am going to introduce Matt Ho next. Um, and, uh, and I don't envy his position following that R really, <laughs> him fucking powerful uh piece do check it out um on nbc opinion i will say this about matt who i will also let sort of introduce himself but i think for a lot of us on this call and my my sense is for a lot of us like out there right just like the veteran community and just the activist community um matt's kind of been an inspiration and he's going to reject that naturally um sorry about that that was quite possibly the worst timing for my internet to drop out <laughs> no worries you you well you you are lucky because that means you got to miss out on me uh like lauding you for your beautiful writing um, i wanted to hear that Dan. yeah no 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 I'll, I'll call you after and we could have like a love fest together that's what everyone thinks we do with our rings is like knock them and then like just but no that that was uh, incredible, like I had said, and um, like I said, inc you, you don't get to say that an op-ed is beautiful because they're usually not. But th that that was incredible, and uh, and you didn't hear me say that. I also used to drink at the Golden Bee. Uh, oh damn, Fort Carson. Oh yeah, so many great nights. And like you, when I think about the peers and soldiers 
that that we lost it is those moments right that that we i think most veterans who like new people personally that's where we go you know more than more than some of the ceremony of course you you had the displeasure in some ways and pleasure in others of seeing both sides that i i can't imagine um so that's it i was i was starting to introduce matt and saying that um because he he and giovanni are competing for the oldest dude on the call um they have that in common they also have in common uh that unlike almost all anti-war post-service veterans in which i have to include myself matt did it did something courageous in in uniform or in government service in his case which is refuse and dissent publicly and and like it's been said a dissident is action not words and uh, matt was a uh, you know, combat vet Marine, uh, before he went over to the state department and then found himself on the front end of the Obama surge, right? The good war. And, and I'll let Matt expound on that. Right. But that's what we were told. And I believed it along with half of America, right. At, you know, when you were getting ready to go to Afghanistan with state, I was coming out of the surge in Iraq thinking this guy is, is the future. And, you know, and, and I, and I bought it. And, and, and I think a lot of us did, but, uh, Matt, you, uh, you stood up and said no. And, uh, in that sense, like Giovanni, you showed courage. Most of us don't have. And like I started with, I think because of that, not just in the veteran community, but especially, uh, you've stood as an example and an inspiration that you of course will reject, um, for a whole bunch of us because you, you know, you were anti-war like a few others, uh, when it wasn't cool. Yeah, I'm not sure it is yet, but, uh, but Matt, thanks for coming on. And, you know, you tell us what's on your mind, brother. Well, thanks, Danny. And uh, it's great to be uh, with you guys as well as to, of course, um, to be uh, on this podcast again. Um, you guys are doing great work and uh, Eric, it's, it's, uh, it was, that was a, a really beautiful piece of writing, put a little bit of uh, a tear in my eye. Um, I mean, you feel like you've heard so much of it so often and just the way it's phrased differently one more time, you know, gives you that sense of feeling again. And, um, you know, the other thing too, so many of our paths have crossed whether we've known it or not. Um, you know, Eric, you were at Arlington National Cemetery. I lived across the street on the other side of Route 50 from Arlington Cemetery in, in Fort Myer for years. I used to drink with guys. Uh, I, I was overseas, I guess, when you were there, but I would be drinking with, with guys from um, uh, who were part of, you know, the old guard at Fort Myer in this dive bar uh, that was on Pershing Drive uh, right there. You know, I remember, and, um, you know, so, so much of us cross paths with one another, whether or not we know it or not. Um, and then meet up later in life. But the other thing, too, is that I think for most people who are not in the military, their conception of Memorial Day for, as a veteran is that you're thinking strictly of your lost comrades, the, 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 the guys and gals that you're with, they're no longer alive, um, and that it's just limited to the people in uniform. And certainly, as we've heard today, it's not. You know, Memorial Day is not limited to just men and women who wore the uniform. Um, everyone, if you, every one of you guys so 
or have said, you know, have mentioned the Afghan or the Iraqis, you know, you've mentioned family members, you know, you've mentioned, you know, I mean, so this extends out in waves and in ripples that um, I don't think is well understood outside of the veteran community and not said well enough either. It's not, it's not expressed well enough that look, Memorial Day is just not about the men and women that we are burying who used to hold a rifle. You know, this is about the families, you know, and, and you can expand this to so much, whether it's the families who had to bury people, whether it's, it, it's the wives who are li- li- living with uh, extremely high rates of domestic violence in the veterans community, right? I mean, like there are wives who are suffering because of that, or, or, or the, 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 you know, the, the, the uh, men and women of veterans who have PTSD or the, the spouses or family members who now have PTSD themselves because they lived with somebody who went away and came home, not themselves. And now they walk on eggshells around them. And now they themselves have PTSD because they're trying to be a caregiver. They're trying to be a loving spouse or brother or sister or mother or father or son or daughter. And it just wrecks you. I mean, and then of course, all the uh, people in these countries, too many in a name. I mean, if you, if, if, and Danny and I had a piece today in, uh, together in Mother Jones, um, and we expanded on this a bit and, and, and spoke about it, uh, but this idea of what the war means to other people outside the United States is something that we don't come across enough and don't discuss, discuss enough, and not just for the Iraqis and the Afghans, but all the wars, you know, Syria, Yemen, Somalia, Libya, and then all the wars it, that have torn apart Africa over the last 10 years. Um, people who are living, um, whether because militia groups have, you know, uh, uh, and insurgencies have banded with extreme Islamist groups, um, or because uh, the United States is providing uh, tens of million do- millions of dollars and green berets to dictators and despotic regimes, you know, or it's our drones flying overhead that are, 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 are terrorizing a generation of people, you know, a generation of young people from Mali all the way to Pakistan are growing up afraid of what's in the sky above them. And, you know, I mean, so this idea of Memorial Day and what it means, it's certainly different than the last than the first time I celebrated Memorial Day. I went into the Marine Corps in January of 98. So Giovanni only asked me in terms of being the guy who's got who's longest in the tooth here. But, um, you know, so this is like 22 years uh, for me of having something to do with Memorial Day because I was in the Marine Corps. I was part of the, you know, the service. And. It definitely has changed. And I want to say that this year, I think I'm the least angry I've been in a long time. I think that has a lot to do with the coronavirus because the coronavirus has cut out a lot of the typical or normal conversation you usually have about Memorial Day. Um, and uh, But on the other side of that, I think, and this is, again is something that Danny and I spoke about in our piece, this idea that those who went overseas from the United States, who the people who were most represented in terms of those who suffered and the families that suffered because of these wars here in the United States 
are largely unseen. They largely come from rural populations or urban centers. They largely come from certain parts of the state. I know Danny is doing work on this. Uh, and I know he's got stuff coming out about what it looks like in terms of, of who in New York went to war, war, fought, and died. You know, and like it's that type of understanding of demographics. And, you know, as most of us all know who are there, you know, there's a poverty draft. You know, it, 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 it's economics of most of our kids who, you know, guys, guys we serve with came from lower income families. And we see that now, I think, with what's happening with the coronavirus. And I think this is the point of Danny that we're trying to get at is that the people who are suffering and dying from the coronavirus are for a large part from the lower income are from are from communities of color. And that they are unseen, that they are un, unknown. Um, and so I think, you know, what we, getting at that, it comes to, well, we call these people heroes. And so whether you're a kid who ended up going to Iraq and getting blown up and killed, or whether, you know, you're, 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 you're a mother who's working, you know, her shift in Walmart because she needs the money, we call these people heroes. But the reality is, is that they're exploited people. And, you know, the, fun, the thing I think about with Memorial Day is that it's about, it should be about moving forward. Of course, it's about remembrance and all that, but it should be about moving forward. And if we're going to tie this coronavirus into the wars, and if we're going to say that the, the war on COVID, uh, and we're going to make these allusions to the Second World War, well, then at some point we have to understand that, well, then change must happen. Something must come from it, because otherwise, if this war on COVID is going to be like the war of our generation that you guys have all been speaking about, that this podcast is more or less devoted to, well, then, you know, it's going to be a 20 year, this war on COVID, this pandemic war is going to be the same in the sense of that it's going to be a failed war. It's going to be, a, you know, nothing will change. The pandemic will win, you know, as well as those who benefit from the pandemic, just like as those who benefit from the wars have won, so to speak. You know, there's been a lot of people in the United States who have won from these wars. A lot, of, if you go to Washington, D.C., in the suburbs, uh, you know, around Washington, D.C., that's the wealthiest part of the United States, and it wasn't the wealthiest part of the United States 20 years ago, but it's the wealthiest part of the United States now because of the, how much money we spend on the military, the war-making uh, 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 machine that exists. If you go through any of the Washington, D.C. suburbs, they are just completely populated by the defense industry and the intelligence industry and then all the other organizations that support that. So there are a lot of people who are making six-figure salaries, who have two homes now, who have done very well because of the wars. Um, and the same will be the case with pandemic. And so I, I think that as, you know, and I know Danny began this with talking about the veterans community and the anti-war community, we have to engage on this in the sense that, look, when we went, when we were in a, when I first got to Iraq was right in 04, was right at the time that Rumsfeld had said uh, along the lines of, look, you don't, we don't go to a, you don't go to the war with the army that you want. You go to the war with the army that you have. Well, you know what? We go to the pandemic with the healthcare system and the society we have, not with the one we want. 
And so how different is it for me and the guys I was with in Iraq? If I used to get in my Humvee in Iraq in 04, and I used to have a, this armored door that the guys before us had made, right? And I close that thing and I take a hammer and I drive up a, a, a peg, right? You know, to keep that thing secure. And the whole, it really didn't matter because from here up was open. So yeah, maybe the lower half of my body would have survived, but the top half of me would have gotten swiped away. Um, but how different is that, right? Then these nurses and doctors, these heroes, right? Hey, I guarantee you what, as soon as sports comes back, guys, instead of us being asked to stand up and, you know, and be applauded at every game and, and that whole awkward thing we go through, that's going to be now nurses and doctors. But how different is it for me having to, to like, you know, use that uh, jury, jury rigged armored door of our own and all these doctors and nurses who we call heroes are dying doing their work, who are making their own masks, gloves, who are going into work with like, uh, you know, aprons from their kitchen to use as smocks, uh, you know, how different is that? So I, I think that, you know, with every Memorial Day, I do try and not look back so much as I, I want to look forward. And I, I think as a community, for, for those of us who are on this call, for those who, for those who, are, who, are, who are watching and listening, that this is something that the, the, the anti-war community really must engage in. We talk a lot about intersectionality, right? We talk a lot about, and we say all the time, look, as an anti-war movement, we have to reach out and, and explain to the environmental movement that, look, hey, as long as ExxonMobil, its biggest client is the Department of Defense, there's going to be no change in any type of, right? There's going to be no progress on the environment, just as the same with, uh, you know, and the same with the labor movement, the same with whatever other movements that uh, militarism really weakens, so I, I, I think that's it now as this pandemic goes on, as 100,000 are dead, um, as, you know, and I, I think this is the same with a lot of you guys feel the same way maybe about, I know I'm here in North Carolina, everything's reopening, people are going to the restaurants, nail salons are open. I've got the same feeling in my stomach uh, that I did when um, – the surge in Iraq happened, the surge in Afghanistan happened, the, the airstrikes in Libya occurred, uh, we started arming uh, fighters in Syria, right? Uh, we started building drone bases in Africa. The same feelings in my stomach that this is not going to work, this is a huge mistake, are there. And I think as veterans, we do have a place in society where we can be heard. And I think this is where we really need to make it because I think this is just one more thing along with the wars and along with climate change. This is the um, this is the the, the, the the triad, if you will, these pan these pandemics. And I believe more will come um, are what really will cause so much more suffering, if not the collapse of society and of human race, et cetera. Matt, thanks so much for that. Uh, we, we need to do more articles together and we need to do more uh, calls to come up with the article ideas because <laughs> you genuinely have a, a real gift for like the language and the analogy in a common sense way. Because even just now listening to you, I was like, man, I wish I would have come up with that and wrote that. So we'll have, <laughs> feel, feel free, man. You're recording yeah. this, so you should get a transcript. So feel right. free. Yeah, just, uh, yeah. And like our last transcript, uh, it turns out that we both say, you know. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, you know, I mean, I think you brought, there it is. There you, it is. Exactly. You yeah. Brought, you brought up uh, so many important linkages about 
society and and how the pandemic does in real ways, not in like the veneer ways that we often hear relate to these wars. Uh, I, I think that that is super vital to bring up because if there is a silver lining to Corona, it seems to be like the gift of exposure. Uh, and I don't mean that as a pun in the sense that I'm always asked, and I'm sure you are more and for longer than me, well, what do you do? How do you make people care? You know, and of yeah. course there's already a pejorative in there that, you know, the implication people don't care, but largely it can be true, although they have their reasons living paycheck to paycheck. But the thing about that I try to say is, well, we need to convince folks of the truth, which is that there are opportunity costs to military spending and war. And I think, like you mentioned, the way that the nurses are running into these underfunded hospitals without PPE, just like when you and I were in Humvees that weren't good enough. And and during the EFP craze in East Baghdad, the projectile, uh, you know, piercing rounds, for someone got the idea that glass, like the plexiglass would stop it more than the metal. And so then there was like all the windows, all the replacement windows in the whole base in Southeast Baghdad went missing. Because everyone was stealing them and just like oh, tacking yeah. Them yeah, yeah. No, don't get me started. We used to, uh, um, you know, I was a combat engineer and an on bar. We didn't have, and we had terrible snipers uh, out there for a while. And our guard towers didn't have the bulletproof glass. And so my guys used to have to go to the dermo lots. In dermo, for if you don't know, is where you put decommissioned military equipment. So my guys have to go and 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 uh, the guys who are building these things would go and um, you know the ones that weren't out doing route clearance, looking for the IEDs, were building these bunkers and guard towers. And, you know, they would basically pull the glass out of the Humvees to put in guard towers. And I mean, I could go back. And I mean, if I went back to uh, the website, I casualties, which is a, a, which tracks and lists all the people killed in these wars. And I went back, if I went back to 06, 07 and looked at the names, I sure as hell would remember which of those were Marines that were killed in guard towers because we didn't have glass there. Right. But as we used to say, we can't get glass for our guard towers. Our Humvees aren't adequate to protect us. But, you know, if you went to the air base, they've got a Burger King that I bet never runs out of buns. You know, I mean, so it all depends on what type of uh, I don't want to get down on the path of talk about the money involved and everything. But, yeah, no, absolutely. This this is the exposure. And I think touching on what I said about uh, not being angry. This is also, too, though, I feel as if the least I've been contacted about Memorial Day by friends, family, acquaintances in a long, long time, right? You know, and I think that's because um, people haven't be, or people aren't being told uh, to excuse that phrase, but people aren't, it's not being suggested to people about Memorial Day this year as much as it has in the past, because I feel in previous years, you get like those, those text messages and emails that mean well, but you could tell this person obviously just heard something and they're reaching out to me to thank me for our service because they were told to do it. They're conditioned to do it. It's become like a religious ritual, basically. Basically, Absolutely. Uh, and it has been an interesting experience. And, and like we mentioned in the piece, if you exclude the world wars and the civil war, more people have now died of yeah. coronavirus than all the rest, right, of our wars yeah. combined, Americans at least. And, and that, I mean, that's instructive in a sense. And, uh, and, I, and I think we hit some, some interesting parts of that article and the way you linked it to the unions and the war on labor, because this really is all connected. Um, the last thing I'll say before I uh, do our best to keep it on time and turn it over to uh, Henry and uh, Clifton is 
I'm glad you brought up because we have done a great job on this pod, as I knew we would of mentioning, you know, the locals in these countries and the and the suicide and the PTSD and, and that's not done enough. But you mentioned the the dependence and the the sacrifice and the trauma that they go through, the wives, you know, uh, of these soldiers who go away or husbands now. Yeah. And, uh, you know, it, it resonated with me when you said it, because uh, uh, personalizing things has its limits. But I mean, look, we all like to be the protagonist of our own stories. I mean, I walk around every day with my headphones on because I like to think there's theme music to the heroicism <laughs> of my life. But the reality is that I broke I broke two marriages with wonderful people. Yeah. And uh, and, and, and and I have culpability for that. That's far outside the veteran experience, but there's no way it didn't play in. And and then when you multiply that by the millions of Iraq and Afghanistan vets, it's like no one really ever buys. Well, they, they wouldn't know in the first place, but no one like buys a ticket or a Friday's meal for a dependent who's there like alone and struggling with her. Like you've seen her right with like the four kids and two of them are under the age of three trying to get on an airplane. I mean, that's a logistical nightmare worse than getting out of a rock. And we've all watched them. And so I just think it's really important that you brought up the dependence and I'm glad you did. Um, It it makes me laugh actually thinking of that because I remember when you'd be overseas, you'd be be deployed and guys would go home on R and R for two weeks and they would be, grateful to be getting back to Iraq or Afghanistan because the home life was such hell, because, right? We're with all the kids there and everything else and what the wives were going through and the honey-do list was longer than their arm. And yeah, I mean, like, I remember, but, but I mean, that, but to get back to the serious aspect of it, oh yeah, I'm the same way too. I've got, uh, you know, I wrecked the marriage, I've wrecked relationships. Um, and I think everybody, uh, who's gone through this has some aspect of that. You know, it's only the very few uh, lucky who haven't, um, whether it's because they got uh, engaged uh, early in therapy and help. uh, And also too, that they've got a spouse who understands so well to the point that the spouse is also getting help because the spouses can't get through this on their own. And so many of them do. And the other problem is too, is that, it's just the way that, that it works, that you know somebody, you fall in love with them, you're making a life with them, they go away for eight months or 12 months or however long, and they come back and say they're a different person is understating it. Um, and then everything that comes from with that, the anger, the depression, the substance abuse, all those other things that come along, yeah, life uh, becomes a living hell um, for so many uh, spouses uh, and children um, and I say it's not just our generation. I mean, you certainly talk to people who have uh, fathers who were Vietnam vets. You talk to people who had uh, whose fathers were in World War II or Korea. The same things occurred. Uh, and it is. It's something I, I think our society just doesn't speak to enough about how much these and it, and it, it, it's men and women, but it's predominantly women uh, carry and, and, and how that affects them in terms of having you get in that secondary PTSD. Absolutely, man. And Tim O'Brien's great piece, The Things They Carried, listed all the metaphorical stuff. And uh, someone needs to write uh, a Things They Carried for like the wife at home. Uh, yeah, geez. She carried a lot. And uh, all right, well, I'm going to, uh, Clifton has been incredibly patient at the end of the line, which is, is, is never fun, especially when I have any access to a microphone, uh, which is a disaster for all involved. So Henry, I'm going to turn it over to you. 
to introduce Clifton, who uh, is a great guy to kind of bring us home among the guests. Um, Clifton, it's so great to have you here, man. I uh, thanks for having me. Absolutely, I uh, I've really valued you know your 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 music is it's such an interesting gift to everybody that gets to to hear it to be a part of it um i'm ever <laughs> thank you once again for giving us our theme song for the podcast which uh i actually i have a little it's linked up now on our website so people can play the song in, in its entirety i didn't have that set up before but now people can hear the whole song beginning to end when i butcher it up for the podcast they can uh, hear something a little bit more pure um so but what i was gonna mention is that you went through an incredible experience yourself um the what happened to you over uh, over in iraq and coming home and just all the, the the process that you went through but you were brave enough to be some of the few of us who said no who said i'm i'm i'm, I'm not gonna i'm not gonna consent to this anymore um and I think you really feel and hear that in your music that, you know, there, there's uh, um, the historical aspect of it is amazing. The How far it goes back, how you trace the uh, the lineage of the ways that you play. Um, so anyways, I'm going to shut up and I'm going to let you talk and uh, do your thing. And uh, just thank you so much for uh, being with us. Okay, well, thanks for having me again. My right when y'all said that, the wind kicked up and my damn lamp went out. But I'm still here. I'm about to relight this lamp. That is hilarious. Whoa. All right. <laughs> there we go. I just want to, um, so y'all asked me to play this song, German War. And... I guess that'd probably be my main contribution to this rather than get into a bunch of um, my own like personal thoughts and experiences. But I just want to give some background on the song. Uh, it comes out of the 1830s, actually. And it's about a gunfight between the Texas Rangers and I believe Comanche Indians uh, in the 1830s. And it's been sung, I believe, since the 1830s. And this was when... Long story short, this was sort of adapted by First World War veterans, guys who came back to the Southern Appalachian Mountains after the First World War. And I believe they were familiar with that old ballad from the 1830s. It's called Texas Rangers. And so these First World War veterans who were banjo pickers uh, sort of adapted their, their new lyrics to, to the old song. Uh, now, I learned the song when I was a young kid, learning to pick the banjo from an old guy named George Gibson, who's from Kentucky. And I knew the song already when I, when I was in Iraq, and I actually had a five-string banjo in Iraq in 2003 and 2004. And when that thing got shipped out to me and people realized I could play it, they made me play the damn thing every night. And once they knew I could play this song, everybody wanted to hear this song every night. So I'm going to try to give you a rendition like I used to do uh, often late in the evenings in uh, 2003, 2004, we'd get around. We had a M577 with all the antennas on top of it, and uh, we would get around that 
And if we could, and I would bring out, break out the, the banjo and we would quietly play and they'd make me, they'd make me play this song. Um, so in the beginning of the song, the singer, the protagonist uh, asks, says, uh, whoever you may be, I hope you'll pay attention and listen unto me. So let's try to do that. Let's try to listen to the words of the song. Good advice. 
to surrender and try to save my life. My friend shot down beside me, tears falling from my face. Oh, how I love you, brother. again y'all that was beautiful man thank you yeah clifton that was uh just incredible I, I think what you show along with ryan is that the the ways of kind of uh expressing what a lot of us are trying to get at can be done in art forms that are a whole lot if not better more eloquent than uh than the spoken or the written word 
And uh, I'm reminded of the uh, Forts on a Hill T-shirts that we wear uh, that I don't have on today, although I cut the sleeves off mine as well, of course, uh, of Woody Guthrie's guitar. As I'm sure you're familiar, this machine oh, yeah. kills fascists. And uh, you're, you're killing something, militarism, fascism, and uh, that was beautiful, dude. And uh, I know it's not easy listening uh, and being last, but what a great member of this community, Clifton. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. I, I really appreciate it. I, it's not a song that I sing often I, for understandable reasons, but for a group of people like y'all, I'm more than happy to certainly honored, honored to do it. Thanks for having me. And uh, I, I hope to talk to y'all again soon. Thanks, absolutely. Brother. Yeah. We'll absolutely have you back on. Well, Henry, it's time to give the people what they want. They want to hear what uh, the Godfather uh, to steal from uh, both Coppola and old school uh, has to say <laughs> the, uh, the, 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 the founder uh, and the recruiter extraordinaire of Forts on a Hill um, in, in, in however much time you want, man, what's, what's on your mind as, as the organizer and as just a member of this community? Eric asked uh, when we started how long, We've been doing the podcast, and it's been two and a half years, I think, since you, you and I started. And I can't tell you the education that I've received in that time that I did not have about my own time in the military. Um, you know, we were never taught anything about the people we were going to, to help. You know, we, we weren't taught their language we weren't taught their culture we weren't taught anything and you know the first tour i had some i had some faith as like maybe we can do something good something positive second one i just wanted to keep my guys alive just want to get everybody home in one piece if the mission was clearly a failure and as they do now they're still piling more of us um into the buses, onto the planes, onto the deployments, wherever they happen to be. Um, I wanted to make special note about during this time of COVID about uh, elderly veterans. Um, that's the people that I've been thinking about the most. Um, you know, guys that are Vietnam vets, Korea vets, World War II um, that are having to deal with this, having to deal with uh, an underprepared system. Um, thankfully, the VA has been doing okay with it. Not if you go to any of the state homes, those places have been a train wreck. And uh, I'm going to talk more about that on the podcast. Uh, I wanted to mention my grandfather, um, he passed away last year. He was a World War II veteran and a Korea veteran. He survived Pearl Harbor. Um, he was a, a PFC, uh, a Marine on board the USS Tennessee. And uh, he was on a fire crew. He fired, he uh, shot water into an electrical panel that was on fire. It exploded. Um, thankfully everybody that uh, came out of that, he lived, he had to recoup and 
later fought in the uh, in the Marshall Islands, and he went home. He thought he was done, and then he got uh, recalled for Korea. Um, that time as a, as an E6 as a staff sergeant, um, and he was at the Chosen Reservoir, uh, a very horrific and um, nasty battle, especially because of the weather. It was in the bitter winter. I think it was in 53, end of 53. So my brother mentioned to me, you know, is that he was kind of glad that Grandpa passed away last year because if he was still here, he would have to be dealing with all of this. Especially the fact that Gonzaga is not playing right now. The old man would be effing irate that he didn't have basketball to watch football to watch, a sport to watch. Um, Grandpa did, uh, he suffered from alcoholism and uh, he was a teetotaler for a long time, put that stuff down for a very long time. And uh, even organized AA groups uh, in the, after that, him and a a friend that he made that was a, a Vietnam veteran. And it just it got me thinking about, you know, Matt, you mentioning about destroyed relationships, about trying to deal with pain um, through any kind of substance abuse, whatever's familiar. Because um, there were times that he would fall off the wagon and I was usually gone. I, I lived in Oregon where he lived in Idaho and then I joined the army. Um but there was one thing that that really bothered me. He was every year the the area that he lived in in northern Idaho and eastern Washington would have a celebration remembering Pearl Harbor, and they would invite their Pearl Harbor survivors and their family and their descendants. And he would go every single year. And the last year that I saw him it was 2015, and in December it was biting cold just absolutely horrific and there's this 94 year old man who has we were at Fairchild Air Force Base for the ceremony and there's a group of Air Force cadets that are looking at him kind of like he's Beyonce you know it was it was it was and and he stood there and shook hands took pictures he wanted them to know what him and his comrades had done where they had been um and then one day we had a conversation about his bronze star. It was along with his his purple hearts were hanging there in, in his den downstairs. And in World War II, the bronze star was given to combat veterans. That was their combat patch. That's, I think that's the simplest way I can explain it. In our current time, and everybody on this, this uh, phone call is familiar with what I'm about to talk about, um, those medals, those Bronze Star medals, were given to staff positions, people that worked in offices, people that got coffee for generals. And by the time that, that all this had happened, you know, my, my, my feelings about the military and, and becoming anti-war had, had become a bit different. And I asked him about it. I said, Grandpa, you need to know about this. These douchebags that don't deserve the medal you got are getting it. And they're getting it for really 
pathetic, non, non-heroic, non-wartime activities. We're not talking about guys who were out fighting specifically. And he really, really didn't like that. He, that, that really, really bothered him. And I had, I had other questions for him that I didn't get to answer. Um, because of the him him passing away, but that tokenization, I think, tells you all you need to know about our current state. How the goalposts are always moving. How we decide what is a free Iraq. How many sections of Afghanistan do we have under control, and how many are still controlled by the Taliban? Um, I remember going to Arlington early, early in my tour in the army and standing there. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure, Matt, I'm sure you've been there many times, walked past it, you know, and, and you get lost. You literally get lost because they're just fields of graves. And I'm, I told myself, I told my young self, I knew I was going to Iraq soon. What does this mean? What is I, I, I didn't have an answer. But I wanted to know what all this death and destruction meant. Did it mean that these men and women died for something? Or were they just tokens too? And I hope that I hope that people will try to look at veterans, try to look at service members, not as tokens, but as people. As people who probably just wanted a decent paying job. They didn't feel particularly great one way or another about America going to war, but they knew that they had to make their mortgage payment. So they made a choice. Like most people that work in shitty jobs like Amazon and elsewhere, make a choice. They sacrifice their safety for their paycheck. Unfortunately, that is the American way. It shouldn't be that way. And it especially shouldn't be that way for the people that we say we send into arms way to protect us. And I think that's all I have. Thanks, Henry. Um, that's another really, really solid, if disturbing, analogy. And, um, and, and and we do that. You're right. We do that as a society. And um, so many people on the call tonight have done a good job of, of humanizing the, the people that they lost, whether they were American or else, you know, or foreigners or, or people at home and putting not just a face to the name like they do in the military times or, you know, once every five years when they decide to put the little, you know, death photo that we all take, that macabre photo that we all have, right? Um, that's, we know is going to be, you know, it, more than a face to a name, a story to the name, like your grandfather, um, like Tyler Parton, uh, who Eric spoke about. I mean, the, remembering them for the time they played the piano when it wasn't their turn at the Golden Bee Pub, right? Or the question that you didn't get to ask your grandfather. That that that's more than tokenization, and it's more than a face to the name. And uh, I just want to thank you for not only what you have to share tonight, but for being a huge part uh, of this new media and this movement, and and being my friend. And uh, through hard years, you know, uh, when, when I was reliable and when I wasn't and, uh, and learning from each other, it's, uh, 
it's it's been awesome and and then hopefully uh we can really give people what they want and like you know hang out together like in real like real people uh after three years uh a quarantine is really getting in the way of that uh i'm I'm sure we had other excuses before but that we'll we'll use the quarantine for all it's worth Uh, (laughs) so before we close out because of course we've uh, gone over as anyone who listens to Force on a Hill knows is as per SOP, right? For the veterans out there. Um, uh, Ryan wants to throw in uh, a couple of points that he didn't get to hit. Uh, I'm going to close this out after that. And I'm going to pretty much just close out at that point. I- I'll say a couple of things, but I'm going to, I'm going to kind of uh, table my time since, uh, since I do a lot of talking in any medium possible, Ryan hit us up, man. Hey, so um, I apologize. I know this is going long, but I felt like this was important. I just want to close out on a two-minute thing. So this is a quote. In July 1978, Jeffrey A.J. was a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Family Research at George Washington. He wrote a paper called After Vietnam in Pursuit of Scapegoats. Dr. Jeffrey J. observed, my talks with veterans convinced me that their problems are not so simple, nor so easily addressed. The veterans' conflicts are not his alone, but are bound to the trauma and guilt of the nation. And our failure to deal with our guilt renders the veteran the symptom carrier for society and increases his or her moral and emotional burden. This burden isolates the veteran and will freeze him or her in an attitude of perpetual combat until the issues of war are confronted in the national conscious. Now, I also um, would say that want to remind everyone, you know, we are an imperialist nation We have active military operations in seven countries every day, 800 bases in over 80 80 countries. And I like to use the term anti-imperialist. I'm not anti-war, I'm anti-imperialist. And I think that's an important thing. So thanks for having me on. And I'm absolutely humbled to spend my Memorial Day with um, people speaking truth power. Thanks, Ryan, and and thank you for the uh, the language is important. Plain language is important, and I agree that uh, in many ways we're part of more of an anti-imperialist movement, an anti-systemic militarism beyond anti-war. I think during the Vietnam War, one of the things they got caught up on was they were anti-war, right? They were anti-Vietnam War, and 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 didn't always broaden to understand the Indochina, you know, implications as well as the whole thing. Uh, well, like as, as, mentioned about the layers, you, you know, you advance layers. You might originally think you're anti-war, but maybe eventually you'll realize it's an imperialist issue. 100%. And, uh, and my journey started out not so much anti-imperialist, but, oh, we can't win in Iraq, you know, and that, and that, was, and, and that was the beginning of my descent. So I, I'm not upset about that because it was an entry. But, you know, as, as we close out, uh, one of the things that struck me about the guest tonight and the format and what we did is uh, it, it felt a, li- a little bit in a positive way. I mean, this like the old teach-ins that just don't happen anymore, at least not often. 
from the Vietnam War where a building was occupied and, and folks would would speak their truth to each other and share and learn together as 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 protest, but also as honoring something, some sort of dream. Uh, it reminds me of the Mississippi Freedom Summer Schools, uh, where uh, not that we're teaching folks, but we're 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 sharing and speaking our truth. And when you go one after the other, like we have with the different diverse voices, that has value, man. That that has value, and it's kind of a lost art. Although we saw some of it in the in the uh, Occupy movement, so uh, closing out, I'm I'm not really gonna tell my uh, story. I I talk too much, man. And um, one of the things I'm learning about myself this Memorial Day, I, I'm in a great place right now, um, personally, when it comes to substances and staying happy. And I'm almost um, embarrassed to say that in the midst of so much suffering. But, uh, but, but I'm doing okay. And, and that's different from last year. So sure. I'm angry intellectually and emotionally in some ways, but I'm glad to be part of this group and, and, and feeling, feeling pretty healthy. And I don't think that I get to that place and it could be fleeting. You know, I'm, I'm a realist. I don't get to that place without the community that I found after the war. Um, I don't go a single day without hearing from Henry and Kagan. And I barely ever go a day without hearing from Ryan. Uh, and a lot of times it's just, uh, Hey, I love you, brother. I hope you're doing good. And that's, and that's how we exchange. And I talk to a lot of folks in this call that way. And I think if you magnify that, increase the aperture, we're not alone in that man. And, uh, so I'm going to leave, uh, I say, I I've got, <laughs> This is everything's political. The personal is political, but I'll leave with this, which is um, uh, I'm in quarantine like everybody else, but I live in Lawrence, Kansas, despite coming from New York. Uh, and I live here because my kids are here and uh, and I have 50 50 time with them. And um, and they're my sanity and sort of reason for waking up in the morning. And, and Memorial Day for me in some ways is every day because um, folks think that I hate America or, or I don't think we should honor vets. But uh but I have a walking memorial in my house, AJ, Alexander, James, Michael, my 11-year-old, my first son, named after Alex Fuller and James Smith and Michael Balsley, and um, whose spouses my ex-wife Erica had to face while I was away in the war when she found out that they had been, their husbands had been killed. And um, AJ is not defined by that name, and I'm, I'm very careful about telling him that, but he's a walking memorial who sort of makes me proud. And, and I'll tell you, I don't want him to be just like me in a million ways. And I don't even want him to be just like them, but I do hope that he'll take uh, the courage and spirit in those three men. Uh, Cause it was real and it was funny and it was profound and it was crazy. Um, I hope he, he takes some of that courage and, uh, and also some of the, just the strength and the empathy in this group. And I like the E word most of all. And, uh, and I sure hope he's kind and I think he will be. And if, if anything that I've done or learned or ways I've changed in my life, uh, can pass on to him, I, I hope it's that. And, uh, and I learned a lot of that in this community tonight. And, uh, you know, I follow you guys anywhere, even if it's to a zoom call. So I'm going to end it there, man. I'm going to go against my instincts. And, uh, this has been great. And I hope the listeners appreciate it. And I know we'll probably put it out for those who couldn't make it.
or just couldn't stay up late on Eastern time. Uh, I love you guys. I mean that. And thank you for doing this. You too, Danny. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you guys for putting together. Anytime. Let's, let's do it again. <laughs> Maybe we'll do it for something happy. We'll like review wedding crashes together. <laughs> Mystery science theater style. Right. 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 <laughs> all right. Well, let, let, let's sign off and uh, I'll talk to all of you. Like I always do on the other end. Thank you guys. Thank you for having me. Thank you, everyone. Be cool. Joining us. All right. Peace out. Peace. We're on Twitter at Fortress on a Hill and also at Facebook.com at Fortress on a Hill. You can find our main blog page and our full collection of episodes at www.fortressonahill.com. iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Patreon, Spotify, you name it, almost anywhere you listen, we're already waiting for you. And hey, we're always in the market for more Patreon supporters. Please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com. And if you're not into giving us a monthly payment, think about giving us a couple bucks on PayPal. The link is in the show notes. Skepticism is one's best armor. Never forget it. We'll see you next time. I will not